Hello. Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht, recording an intro for this podcast from a very noisy room in the Jacobin Chicago office after a panel discussion on a Green New Deal and the new book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. It's out now from Verso Books as part of the Jacobin series. Uh, on the panel, we have uh, Alyssa Battistoni, who's an editorial board member of Jacobin, as well as a co-author of the book, 35th Ward Chicago Alderman Carlos Rosa, and a member of the National Eco-Socialist Working Group, as well as a member of the National Political Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America, Sean Estelle. Here's our discussion. Thanks, everybody, for uh, coming out on a Saturday night here at In These Times. My name is Micah Utrecht. I'm the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine. Uh, I'm very grateful that uh, we're joined by somebody who uh, is a non-Chicagoan, one, one non-Chicagoan on this, on this panel, uh, Alyssa, uh, who is one of the co-authors of this book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Uh, and let me just introduce Alyssa and everyone else who's on the, on the panel. Uh, Alyssa Battistoni uh, is a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard's Center for the Environment, uh, co-author of this book, a member of the editorial board of Jacobin, uh, author of many great articles uh, for us about the environment and many other topics, and one of the, one of the four authors of the book that we're here to discuss. Uh, to her left is Carlos Rosa, who is the uh, city council member for the 35th Ward here in Chicago. Uh, just this year, won a resounding re-election victory, uh, 60-40. It's, uh, some might even say it's a landslide. Uh, and he's going to be talking about some of the local uh, work that has been going on around uh, Green New Deal and climate change issues. And then to Carlos's left is Sean Estelle. Uh, Sean is a member of the National Eco-Socialist Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, as well as an elected member of the National Political Committee, which is the elected leadership body of the DSA. So uh, we're going to start with uh, Alyssa. So uh, Alyssa, I've read a number of books about climate change. I've also stopped reading many books about climate change because they're just like too depressing. I'm just like, I can't just like after the four, after I learn about the fourth city, that's going to be underwater by the time I retire. I'm just like, you know what? I got to, I, AKA my death, I guess. Um, but I just like, I can't, I know that I should, I'm like, I pick it up because I'm like, I should do this. Like I should eat my vegetables I should read this book to learn about the ins and outs of climate change. But I sometimes I just haven't been able to do it. But reading your book, I have to say, uh, there I, I was never tempted to put it down. I was, uh, in fact, smiling the, much of the time I was reading it because it's this very inspiring vision. Uh, I mean, we know all of the doom and gloom. We know how awful... Uh, things are set up to be, be in the the very near future if we don't make dramatic changes in society. Um, that people know all that stuff, but reading your book is like ah, here is a vision of a way to respond to climate change uh, that actually makes life sound uh, pretty good. Um, you know, it's not it's not a dystopian hellscape. It actually sounds uh, pretty wonderful. So uh, before we go into all of those details, can you just talk about first what are the principles that undergird the vision of the Green New Deal that you all lay out in this book? 
Yes, I'm. Well, first of all, I'm really uh, glad to be here, and thank you all for coming out. It's really exciting to be talking about the book with um, people in general, but it's really exciting to be here in Chicago, where uh, the you know socialist movement is incredibly inspiring, and we're organizing. Um, the organizing that folks are doing here is really, uh, I think, incredible, and uh, I think has a lot to say and to speak to some of the projects that we're talking about in this book. So I'm really excited to have Carlos and Sean here to say more about the work they've been doing um, and to hear what you all, you know, think and have been working on. So, um, and I'm Chicago gets a shout out in the book. Yeah, I mean, Chicago, Chicago does. Chicago <laughs> Um, and, uh, and it's also, um, I'm really glad Micah that you did not want to like put the book down or stop reading. Cause I do, I, we, I have, completely recognize the experience of reading uh, the climate the climate literature we really did want to write something that would be simultaneously um you know realistic about what uh the science is saying and about how um grim things do look and that's not sort of delusional about that and that's taking that really seriously but that doesn't say well you're either you know there's on the one hand um you know look at the science the science says we're fucked and so we need to just kind of like be depressed or uh accept that it's hopeless or whatever but to be real about the science but then also to think that there is a political vision that doesn't have to sort of um be fatalist or or, uh, or or giving up and that there actually are ways to imagine that we could have uh, a climate warmed world uh, where we are facing things like more extreme weather um, and warmer temperatures and things that we do expect to be coming but that we can actually respond to those and different there are different choices for how we respond to those how we um, uh, both are acting to mitigate and to live with a warmer world and so basically the argument of the book um, is that we need to be thinking about how to do that and a really ambitious way but a way that's making life better for most people rather than saying we need to all like sacrifice and dial back and like tighten our belts and the kind of usual message of like what I think was kind of austerity environmentalism um, and that instead we actually need to think about what a world uh, could be where you know instead of saying sacrifice now for benefits of future generations or people um, like in the abstract sort of the climate and the abstract uh, or someone who's not you that actually we need to think about how climate action can be paired with things that are you know basically delivering immediate benefits and good things in people's lives and so a lot of the argument of the book is that um, a radical green new deal is an effective green new deal and that means that climate policies that are tackling that are egalitarian that are addressing social inequalities that are sort of delivering public goods and services um these are the ways to both cut carbon and to uh, build a you know political power around a green new deal that we we are going to need because you can't just sort of slip the kinds of changes that we know we need to make uh in through the back door you can't just do it through a sort of um technocratic policy that nobody will notice and i think that's how a lot of climate policy has proceeded thus far so we're trying to lay out um you know a big vision of of what we um think and hope a green new deal could be that's building on um the work building on what i think has been a real shift in the past year in climate politics uh from sort of the the sequence of uh the ipcc report um that was like 12 years until <laughs> the end of the world <laughs> um to simplify uh aoc being elected to congress and saying immediately i'm going to make the green new deal priority and then um really i think delivering on that in many ways uh with in conjunction with the sunrise movement protesting but putting forward a resolution that i think really marked a huge leap uh from anything we'd seen before in like climate policy and climate politics and a and a vision that sees 
climate as not this like distinct issue, but as bound up in our broader systems, um, you know, social and economic systems as and emergent from them. So we can't just sort of treat climate as an issue that some policy experts can solve. We have to think about how and where carbon and fossil fuels are embedded into the rest of our lives. And so we, uh, and to go at it in that way. And so that was really exciting. We basically wanted to expand on that vision, but in a way that would be energizing and be like, this is the future we want. Uh, and we don't have to just think about the future as this horrible place that we're all going to, um, you know, where cities are sinking as we never retire. Um, you, you know, you mentioned the AOC, not even a year ago, we were not talking about a Green New Deal at all. I mean, you you were, I guess, but <laughs> but like outside of although not even a, I mean, I was talking about the climate, but not really about right, a right, Green right. New Deal. It's yeah. really changed the conversation. So, yeah, we we were not using the words Green New Deal in sort of everyday political parlance uh, until AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez took uh, office uh, earlier this year, and it's wild to think that now. This is an accepted part of sort of left the left argument for uh, how we need to change the world generally. It's central to left politics. There's a book that magically has existed in less than a year since we started talking about what a Green New Deal uh, might look like. Um, so, you know, you hinted at some of these things already. But, you know, before we go into the into the sparkly, beautiful, wonderful lives that we're all going to live under a Green New Deal, can you talk about uh, what the a little bit of just quickly about the bad way of approaching climate politics uh, that we have had up until we started talking about a green new deal what were the uh, sort of uh, basic you know parameters of, of that approach and why did it fail why was it wrong yeah so what we try to lay out in the book is a distinction between the green new deal we're talking about and um, that we want to see and what we call the faux green new deal uh, the sort of um the way, because I think the language of the Green New Deal has actually gone through different iterations and has been used by different groups of people. And so, um, and, and we feel like there's like a kind of battle for what the Green New Deal is and will be, particularly because it is sort of a popular, um, you know, it, it's it's something that there is a demand, I think, for climate action. So I think a lot of people are probably going to jump on the bandwagon. So we want to define ourselves against um I guess, like the co-optation of the Green New Deal by the kind of um, climate politics we're used to seeing. And I think we'd think of that as basically like a carbon tax and maybe some R&D money um, here and there, uh, maybe some incentives um, for like green job creators, uh, but not actually <laughs> creating green jobs and so on. Uh, but basically a, a policy that's that's imagined to be pretty minimal, um, focused primarily on energy uh in like the energy sector per se um, and oriented towards again sort of being minimally like intrusive in daily life or where it's not supposed to be something that you see or uh, or or know is happening and that's um, that has broad like policy expert consensus but isn't necessarily like a um, something that has like mass public support because you're just trying to kind of um, embed uh, climate action into people's decisions through like nudges of a carbon tax or something like that. Um, and so I think what we would say the problems of that are one, um, I think at this point, it's really uh, a lot of the solutions are meant to be like gradual solutions and it's too late for that. So like a carbon tax is supposed to basically work gradually. And um, the idea, I mean, if you had like a really high carbon tax immediately, it wouldn't work gradually. But most of the ideas, like, you sort of start small and you ramp it up over time and companies can adjust to it and so on. Um, and we a haven't really seen even that uh, happen uh, or um, those be realized 
most places. Um, but also, we just don't really have time to sort of slowly ramp up a carbon tax and hope that uh, the market will drive people to respond accordingly. Um, we also think that there are a lot of places where we just don't expect the market to respond where we need public institutions to provide public goods and services. Um, and so... Uh, and that that is also something that you can just do much more quickly. You don't have to sort of, um, you know, like fiddle with the carbon tax and hope that like the private actors will work. So there's like a, I think in most of our arguments, we're trying to make both, I think, principled and pragmatic arguments that go together because I think they do go together. And so it's like the carbon tax, I think, um, is is a failed idea uh, and is one that will not work on the timescale we need. But it's also one that has, has had a lot of um, political backlash uh, as we have seen through... Um, most obviously in France with the Gilets Jaunes uh, and uh, the response to the fuel tax there where, um, you know, some people have read that as a kind of like, you know, oh, the people will never accept um, the sacrifice that climate change demands, like democracy is uh, not compatible with climate change and so on. This is at least some of the response that you see to that kind of policy. But I think we would argue that actually um, you just what that shows is that you can't just ask people who have already been paying the cost of inequality and austerity um, and frankly neoliberalism to continue to internalize, uh, you know, the the costs of, of the climate transition and so on. So we actually uh, would say that we need to not repeat that mistake by just saying, oh, like, let's do another carbon tax. Um, and this is the, the yellow vest movement. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Which people are probably familiar with and and that Macron uh introduced this this gas tax right uh, as a way of saying like this is this is one of our solutions towards towards uh saving the planet and obviously people really rebelled against that uh literally in the streets and so that's sort of like really good ind- indication of of the way that we should not be uh fighting for this what you you can imagine versions of that in the u.s i mean i think there was a like a similarly like very steep gas tax that was floated in Michigan, where I'm from, uh, that people were just like freaking out about, uh, that, that, that is like, that, that's not going to be, it, it, it because people have un, an understandable response against it, it has, it's just politically dead. Um, and, uh, much less like it's probably not what we actually need to reduce the, 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 the level of carbon that we, that we actually need to be reducing. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's simultaneously, um, is, I, I think unlikely to uh, work as it's intended and also uh, does not have any political support. Like the only real constituency for a carbon tax is um, essentially, I think, capital when <laughs> there's something more threatening on the table. And then suddenly all the fossil fuel companies and all of these other, you know, um, you know, like various corporations and industries get on board with like signing something where they say, oh, yeah, we support a carbon tax, but we support like a $15 a ton carbon tax, which is very, very low compared to what, um, you know, uh, even the IMF says that $75 a ton is what you would need. The IPCC says like 500 to $27,000 a ton. So like, you know, we're talking like really different levels here. Um, also the carbon tax only if their loopholes are erased so that they will never be held responsible yeah, yeah, for yeah. causing climate change too. Totally. Yeah. Like, uh, like the fossil fuel industry will be on board with the carbon tax if they basically get like, um, yeah, protected from uh, being held responsible for climate change. So, I mean, I can't blame them for wanting that, but uh, I don't think that's a deal we should make. Quite the contrary, uh, we should be very angry uh, at the fossil fuel industry and treat them as a real enemy, which they are. Um, And so I think, 
yeah, there's no, there, but there's no real political support. There's no constituency for that kind of policy. And we need to have, a, we need to think about what kinds of climate policies actually can build, you know, political power, can build uh, mass support and can build a political movement that can actually, you know, build on itself over time rather than just um, kind of either like swallowing the carbon tax or rejecting it. So you're get, talking about um, the need for winning any Green New Deal, you know, that's actually going to seriously impact or any any climate change policies that seriously impact the planet uh, as taking on capital, which uh, maybe people in the audience will not be surprised to learn that socialists believe that this is an important uh, uh, aspect of doing uh, much of anything. But that has not been central to the liberal version of saving the planet. Right. That is like that. You you know, market incentives, whatever you can that, that, that we can we can stop catastrophic climate change sort of within the already existing confines of capitalism and you know that's the assumption that you're working under increasingly people like uh, Naomi Klein making this argument that like this is there's no solution to the climate crisis under capitalism period that can't be done um and and so and but that is still something that liberals are still running with in many ways uh but it just has it's not it's like (laughs) i think you have somewhere in the book something about like your proposals are only as radical as the science shows the and you know the the proposal to take on capital and to take on capitalism is only as radical as the science indicates that it needs to be right yeah, I mean, I think we basically take from the standpoint that, um, you know, if if <laughs> the science is saying, like, uh, we're headed for, um, uh, at this point, I think three or four degrees of warming, and that uh, we need to do, you know, if, if we are hearing signs like we need to reduce carbon emissions, like 45% in the next 12 years to have a chance of staying at 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is what scientists and activists recommend. Um, we should probably try to move the politics to hit, you know, hit the goals <laughs> that we're learning from climate science rather than saying, well, this is politically unfeasible, um, according to a sense that like there is no movement possible in politics and that we should therefore let the warming just you know like we have to just prepare for three degrees of warming four degrees of warming you know points where at which it's really um becomes very dangerous i mean we're already seeing worse effects at one degree which we're at now than we had um you know anticipated and so i think that's something we should be very troubled by um and on micah's point about capitalism so i mean i think we basically say in the book you know we we're all eco-socialists. We don't think that uh, a habitable planet is compatible with capitalism, and yet we can't wait for the end of capitalism to start acting on it. So we need to think about, like, the book is oriented towards what can we do in the immediate future um, and what kinds of things can we imagine happening um, without completely overthrowing capitalism, but that are building uh, power within it, that are changing um, the ways of living within it, and that I think uh, do you make it possible to start building something different? Uh, and there's going to be there. I think there will be a really substantial resistance um, because it is some of the things we're proposing, I think will be threatening to capital. So it's going to be hard. Which uh, raises a question of uh, the right wing, the possible right wing or the emerging right wing response, which maybe we don't have time to get fully into, but I was uh, on a panel a week ago with a, a former member of the Trump administration in DS in uh, DC and he did not I brought up climate crisis and he did not uh, deny that that the climate crisis was real but what he said was well you guys on the left are talking about letting in all these people from Central America and from Mexico into the US 
well, they're going to get, a, you know, they're going to come here and adopt this like high carbon lifestyle. Like if you're serious about stopping climate change, like, why do you want to let in all these immigrants who are going to uh, help contribute to climate change, which was a really dire. I was just like my jaw kind of dropped, but I, well, I should have known that this is what's coming because this is, seems to be the, the, the new line on the right is not to deny climate change outright. It's to say, yes, it's coming. We're going to batten down the hatches and it's going to be like American citizens who get to, you know, uh, behind drugs. Uh, you know, it's going to be white people. It's going to be, you know, like there's just going to be uh, an increase in racism and xenophobia and all of these kinds of awful forms of oppression. Uh, and, and it's like we're going to get, get ours and keep ours and we're going to keep everybody else out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there have been strains of, uh, you know, xenophobic and anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric and politics in the environmental movement for a long time. And, um, you know, I don't think they've been dominant in recent years, but that, that has always sort of existed. And, um, but on the right, you know, I think it's like, uh, there's been a lot of, I think, concern about eco-fascism. They don't care about the eco. They're just using whatever they can to do the fascism. (laughs) Um, so it's like, you know, it's like kind of a fig leaf or whatever for like, oh yes, well now here's another reason we, you know, we want to like keep immigrants out is we really care about the environment. And you're like, okay, do you? Somehow I think (laughs) we'll never get around to the decarbonization piece of the eco-fascism. We'll just have kids in cages yes totally so it's like you know we should take all of that with a a grain of salt i guess while also recognizing that i do think it's very possible and plausible um that there at least in the u.s i think that's probably more the case in europe i think it's the the eco aspect of the right is probably more um developed in some ways and it's something really worrisome and you know we also see there like the crisis in the mediterranean and with migrants um is really very dire and very worrisome and so i think you know one of the things we talk about at the end of the book is that there really is no like sort of um there's no like middle ground there's no standing still there's uh i think if we continue the way things are we are likely to see much more of of what you're describing of people who are you know whether um for uh I think probably mostly in bad faith, but probably some people, you know, will say like, we just need to batten down the hatches and sort of the like lifeboat argument, Garrett Hardin, this, um, ecologist who wrote a lot of like really racist stuff, um, wrote about how we needed to sort of save the people we could on the lifeboat and kind of push everyone else off, <laughs> off. And like, I think we will see politics like that. Um, that's just kind of, uh, about, uh, protecting groups of people who, you know, many of whom are more responsible for the climate crisis and so on. But, um, but so I think we really need to to be very aware of that, and also, but but to recognize that it's not only the right that will, I think. So there's like I think one obvious path to that, which is the sort of um, you know Trumpist politics and and the the hard rights like um, a continuation of of the uh, you know xenophobia and anti-immigration politics that we've seen so far but i also think that there's a a road to that um to that outcome that leads more down the center of the aisle and that is a version that um is trying to avoid making changes that's trying to avoid uh you know that's just trying to to stay you know in the sort of course of of what we've been talking about, the sort of like liberal climate policies that are um, satisfying no one that aren't addressing people's real concerns and real, uh, you know, uh, difficulties in their lives. And that's just, that's just, um, I think obtuse to that. And that ends up fueling the right um, in perhaps inadvertently, but nevertheless does so. And that we really need to have a response from the left. I don't think it's a coincidence that the strongest uh, climate policies are coming from the left from, uh, Ocasio-Cortez from Bernie Sanders now from Ilhan Omar um, that like 
that is uh, speaks to a recognition of the the root causes of the problem. And this is what we talk about the radical Green New Deal. It's not radical like fringe or marginal. It's a radical getting at the root, and we need to do that. And if we don't, um, I think things will get um, have, have the possibility to get much much worse. So, uh, and I <laughs> I worry about that a lot. So I think we should we should do something. So before we uh, bring in Sean and uh, Carlos, we've been I said that the book was not depressing and yet we've somehow only talked about the depressing stuff. Um, But the book is truly not depressing. And you're talking about this vision of the future that uh, sounds pretty great to live in. Um, So can you just quickly go through some of the kind of highlights about that? I mean, you have this idea of like no carbon splendor. Um, There's also a, a kind of discussion you know, the, on the left, there's sometimes a way that uh, potential future gets talked about. That's like, uh, you know, no, we're gonna we're gonna have a sort of post scarcity future. We're gonna be able to do every, you know, consume exactly the way that we're doing and more uh, if we just do. You know, we reach this sort of like uh, full communism, uh, you know, version of the future. Um, and then there's of course the other liberal version, the part of liberal climate change stuff we didn't talk about, which is like change your light bulb, drive a uh, drive a hybrid car or whatever, um, and and that, that includes a lot of like personal austerity. Uh, you guys don't argue for either one of those things. You have a sort of uh, uh, third way. Uh, I shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't say third way. <laughs> uh, you have a, you have a different way <laughs> besides those two options uh, in, in a way that that you know involves a change in the way that we consume but also uh, involves, I think, what you guys call public luxury. Um, so can you talk about that sort of like uh, the no-carbon splendor, the sort of uh, public luxury, all of those things? Like, What are, the, what are some of the highlights of, of what that uh, would look like for uh, addressing climate change? Yeah, so we, yeah, I think did want to kind of um, avoid on the one hand, uh, you know, the you know fully automated luxury communism vision that we can all have kind of as much of the you know, we can all live like billionaires or whatever the kind of idea is that that there is no um, no limit whatsoever, that everything uh, that we can just, you know, kind of, you know, ramp up these forms of privatized consumption that the wealthy currently enjoy for everyone. Um, but on the other hand, that we don't need to have the, the idea of these like individualized like in some ways it's maybe the fourth way because uh, there's like the what you're describing of the kind of individualized liberal consumer politics that's like okay well I will agonize over my own consumer choices I will like spend a lot of time thinking about what um, choices I'm making about you know how I eat and what I you know what kind of car I drive or whether I drive a car and like all of these things that like you know are worth thinking about but are not you're not going to change you're not going to stop climate change by just spending a lot of time sort of um, obsessing over <laughs> what the right choices and every single kind of consumer good um and then the kind of complete like uh as what are this like austerity environmentalism but that we all just have to kind of complete um uh, a more austere vision of reducing consumption and how we all need to reduce consumption and so we do think we need to change our consumption patterns which entails changing our production patterns and the relationship of production to consumption and all of these other things that are part of a broader economic system and not just about like our individual choices um, but also that we can only change those collectively and that if we do change those collectively we can, we can change them in a direction where we actually um, it's not that consumption is bad or we should like be uh, feeling bad about consuming at all and that that's 
it's like a sort of sinful thing in the way that I think some of the, you know, writing on climate change really suggests that it's like this moral failure to, to want to have nice things or to like enjoy yourself or like to like luxurious things in some way, but that there are ways to have public abundance and uh, communal luxury and these forms of, of what we talk about as low carbon leisure um, and forms of public consumption that uh, are less resource intensive, less carbon intensive, um, that but that you can have the same and even I think in many cases better quality of life uh, through um, through changing these things collectively. So, uh, you know, we talk about a few things. One or a bunch of different things, but like one is, you know, talking about we have a lot about housing and how to think about housing as part of a Green New Deal and um, uh, a vision of, of building out especially public housing. Uh, and but in a way that's makes, you know, public housing beautiful, no carbon that has, you know, built to the highest sort of efficiency standards. Um, but that also that also builds in, uh, you know, things that make living in the place where you live nice. And we um, draw on this on the experience of Red Vienna, uh, where uh, in the 20s, uh, the I mean, the Social Democrats in Vienna basically just put on a, a luxury tax and a sort of wealth tax and uh, put a lot of money into nice public housing that is still standing, the Karl Marx Hof, which Daniel Adana Cohen, who couldn't be here because he's doing a, he or she was doing a, a Green New Deal for housing rally with AOC in the Bronx today, which was awesome. So uh, we'll, we'll forgive him. For not <laughs> we'll forgive him. But, you know, like, like to take this vision and be like, look, we could make, you know, um, that, that like housing, that public housing can, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, decrepit. I mean, the NYCHA, um, New York City Housing Authority was the like worst landlord in the city this year because they have been not maintaining buildings. They let them, uh, you know, fall into disrepair. They have, you know, vermin problems and all of these things. But like public housing can be beautiful. It can be a place that you want to live. Uh, there are a lot of examples of this around the world that has nice facilities. It has, um, bal- you know, sort of rooftops that you can hang out and dance at night uh, that have, uh, you know, facilities for doing, you know, for playing music or doing theater or whatever you like to do in your spare time and that we can think about ways to build um you know things that meet people's needs but also do so much in a way that let people enjoy you know their time and and one of the things we talk about a lot is about having more time you know so we talk about having about different ways of thinking about green jobs and how to have what green jobs could look like and you know kind of work might look like under a green new deal but also about working less so that we have more time to enjoy our lives (laughs) um and enjoy time spent with other people enjoy time spent you know whether outdoors or like whatever like uh doing whatever you like to do in your spare time, um, enjoying low carbon leisure, as we put it. Um, but that there are ways to, to both to, to do that, but also to build that into our like infrastructure, um, into, uh, you know, whether it's our housing or sort of public recreational facilities and the original new deal built at an incredible amount of like public recreational facilities, whether like parks or beaches or, um, you know, tons and tons and tons of public space that was meant for people to spend their time um, that coincided with the, uh, the institution of the 40 hour work week and the, and the sort of um, shortening of the work week. Uh, and they had originally tried for a 30 hour work week and it failed and we should go for that again. Um, this is essential to like, not only would it make life better to do that, but it would also build political support for the program, right? Like exactly. People, when people get to work less hours and enjoy public services and be in community. They're like, Oh, like the 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 hope would be that they would associate that with these leftists who said, "Hey, we should do this thing," and that that builds public support uh, for what for for the Green New Deal, you know, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So this is part of the you know vision of trying to turn um, what feels right now like a vicious cycle of like cuts to public services, uh, undermining of worker protections, and so on that make it harder for people to organize, um, that undermine uh, you know political power in various ways. Um, to to counter that with having visions of things that you can that we can win, um, you know, immediate and short term victories build uh, power for more of those and, and see immediate, uh, or like immediate, immediate, but like near-term um, results that make people <laughs> want more of that. And I think we actually see, we see some of this nascent in things like, you know, the, uh, the one job should be enough um, demand amongst, uh, you know, hotel workers and grocery workers that we've seen organizing in the past like year or two. Um, and the, the, frustration with having to work like three uh underpaid uh part-time jobs just to make ends meet so you can pay too much for housing um you know because there's a housing crisis all over the country uh, and not have any time to spend with your family or your friends or whoever you want to spend your time with um and so i think it's you know i think we can see this frustration in a lot of um, political movements whether it's the housing movement or the labor movement and how can we like speak to that build on that and build towards a, a vision of, of low carbon good lives so there's a lot more on that that we could talk about that's in the book, but you'll have to buy the book for the low, low price of fourteen ninety five at the back table. Um, so let's go to Sean. So um, Sean, can you just talk first about you know this is the Alyssa just laid out this vision for a Green New Deal that is in this book. Uh, you're on the National Eco Socialist uh, Working Group within the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, can you talk about what kinds of uh, what, what kinds of eco-socialist work DSA is doing right now at a, at a national level and then also at a, a local level here in Chicago? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think this is a great setup talking about the uh, like low carbon, no carbon splendor uh, and the true vision of a new world. Uh, so um, in 2018, shortly after uh, AOC... Uh, worked with the Sunrise folks to do that action in Nancy Pelosi's office and release a resolution for a Green New Deal that was sort of an empty political framework that said, you know, we have some big picture goals, but we don't have the filler of what's going to get us from A to B yet, and we're going to develop these policies. Uh, The National Eco-Socialist Working Group decided that this was really important for uh, DSA to be engaging in helping to fill in what that was going to look like. Uh, and so there was a really uh, collaborative and democratic process, I think probably somewhat similar to the way this book was written, uh, about um, how to create a set of principles, a framework that uh, was going to root DSA chapters and DSA as a national organization in building a strong left flank of what a Green New Deal program was going to look like. Because, yeah, the Green New Deal uh, has been around since Thomas Friedman uh, put it in a column. Uh, and then it's of been... Of all people. Of all people, totally. <laughs> Thomas Friedman. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, I don't know if you want to share what you were saying about like reading it and what was in it. Uh, yeah, so I don't know if anyone's read this column. It's from like 2007. But it's Thomas Friedman just saying, basically, like, a Green New Deal, this is a way to like get America's mojo back after Iraq. It's a way to get like the green, like environmentalism away from like sissy hippies and make it like a kind of like big like country rebuilding macho project it's really it's really i'm not even exaggerating so go read it look it up google tom friedman Green New Deal, said, 2007 he said about why we should invade iraq he was like uh it's a way to tell the terrorists suck on this so i guess like 
Green New I Deal. I had forgotten that. So <laughs> oh, the yes, Green New exactly. Deal is like the way to tell. Yeah, suck on this, sissy environmentalist. Yeah. And also a very kind of, but also like a kind of like American dominance right, in like, right. and I think this is actually one of the things that's interesting about the new Green New Deal is that like historically or in the past, you know, iterations have been much more about America, like dominating the world with like green tech and stuff, even though it's kind of too late for that. But, um, you know, with that, we will, we will like be number one forever. And I think that that's really absent from the current green digital discussion, which I Thank think is God. awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, totally. And so the DSA, uh, national eco socialist working group was looking at both, uh, the set of, uh, politics and principles that come from, I think, a different place in environmentalism. So looking at the Jemez principles of democratic organizing, the principles of environmental justice, um, other places, um, uh, and also what some of those groups like the climate justice Alliance were saying to really come out strong and say, well, we have concerns about the fact that even AOC's resolution talks about being a leader in manufacturing and establishing American dominance um, abroad um, and saying, okay, no, we need to actually start from the beginning with a democratic process to say what it is uh, to be doing politics together that can help to establish this new world. And so now there's a set of principles which exists that has a uh, buy-in and endorsement from uh, something like 85 chapters of uh, DSA, every single major ideological caucus, which there's a, tends to be a lot of bitter infighting. Um, but uh, this is one of the examples of really broad consensus across the entire organization. And it's been endorsed and is being carried forward now as a really serious national project. So there's seven principles, and so I'll just run through the title of them because uh, I think they interact with everything that's in this book as a transitional program to get us towards where we need to be. So it's about decarbonizing the economy fully by 2030 uh, and moving as fast as possible uh, to get there. Democratizing control over major energy systems and resources. So that's about public ownership. And I'll talk about the campaign in Chicago and in other places in a sec. Uh, center the working class in a just transition. So this is building on decades of work from Tony Mazaki and the oil, chemical, and atomic workers, uh, the Just Transition Alliance, and folks that were in the fossil fuel industry and people that were most directly impacted by the coal plants in their backyards to say that nobody can be left behind. We have to ensure that we both shut down these uh, dirty plants and that the workers are able to be retrained uh, and uh, be able to uh, have meaningful work. Uh, uh, decommodifying survival, which is about free college for all, Medicare for all, all of these sorts of things that provide us with the framework to be able to uh, survive and adapt in a climate-changed world. Reinventing our communities to serve people and planet, not profit. So again, facilitating the creation of neighborhood transition councils, thinking about building that resiliency in a way that's not about uh, trying to uh, not name the enemy <laughs> of the fossil fuel industry, but that is about trying to actually uh, embody the socialist project of standing uh, for uh, and with one another. 
demilitarize, decolonize, and strive for a future of international solidarity and cooperation. So really thinking about how, how we're building international solidarity and not just having uh, domestic policies. And then redistributing resources for, from the worst polluters. So I think even some folks on the left uh, are trying to kick the can down the road of how we're going to pay for a Green New Deal. Uh, and, you know, while we can't just say we're going to, like, expropriate the assets of all the oil companies and use that to exactly pay for the solar panels that we're going to need. Um, we can call for something like that and then like figure out the details. Um, but it's about really naming and shaming the enemy and making sure that everybody is, um, uh, shaming those people rather than, uh, not having an electric car in your garage. And so you mentioned what that some of that work has looked like on a local level. Can you maybe talk about uh, just briefly introduce where this idea for a democratized comet or municipalized comet campaign came from? And then we can hear from Carlos about what what that work has looked like so far. Yeah, absolutely. So our, our utility system is a mess. Uh, there's many layers of bureaucracy. It's intentionally very opaque. Right now in Chicago, we pay an electricity bill to ComEd, which uh, distributes our electricity, and they make a profit off of it. They are an investor-owned utility that has a board of directors that makes a profit. And they have a contract with the city, uh, a franchise agreement, that expires every 30 years or so. And so myself and a couple other folks found out last year that that 30-year contract was coming to an end, and there were no environmental organizations, nobody, there was nobody doing anything about it. There were, like, two wonks that knew about it. Uh, can I just say, can I just interrupt? It may have been actually in this office where I think you came up to me, like, two years ago or whatever, and you had this little, like, sly grin on your face, which you sometimes get when you have, like, very good ideas. And you're, like, telling me that you have this idea for this, this campaign. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds like that'll definitely happen. We could definitely do that. I'm sorry. I was not a believer. I'm sorry. I just want to apologize to you and to everyone that I did not believe that we could actually. You were like, once every 30 years, this is our shot. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's do it. But you were right. We're, we're off and running with it. So I apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apology accepted. Uh, but now here we are. Look at yeah, this. Exactly. Now, we're, now we're telling everybody about it. Um, so, yeah, uh, basically we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity to say, uh, uh, to question why this structure is set up this way and say that we can imagine something different. And uh, this happened in Boulder in 2011. Now, 10 years later, they are actually finally in the legal proceedings where they might acquire the infrastructure as a city. So capital has fought back very, very hard. In 2013, in Minneapolis, uh, they took on two of the utilities, and they ended up failing in a municipalization initiative, but they now have a collaborative board with city council where they're able to hold the utility to account in something called a clean energy partnership, where at the local level, they are basically ahead of every other major city in the United States on decarbonization initiatives, including in community solar that is subsidized for uh, the most impacted and the most low-income folks. Uh, and then also we see then the city of Minneapolis taking on the utility Excel at the statewide level because the state, the private utility is uh, throwing around a bunch of money uh, in the capital uh, up in St. Paul and trying to lobby against what they're saying at this table in the Twin Cities. And so it provides a really key uh, like pressure point on the utilities. Chicago represents a very significant profit um, 
like percentage of the profit that ComEd makes. ComEd is a subsidiary of the fifth largest utility company in the United States, Exelon, who are forecasting their profits on having these sorts of utilities and making a profit off of these utilities. So when we have folks like Carlos and the rest of the Socialist Caucus uh, in city council talking, asking questions about why ComEd is spending uh, their money the way that they are, why they are not uh, standing uh, and like being held accountable to the renewable energy targets, uh, and maybe we should think about why they're privately owned, uh, then we are able to essentially have like a boot on their neck instead of the other way around. So what you're describing is basically like if if we're going to in the electricity realm for example move away from uh from carbon move towards decarbonization that road has to go through municipalization through democratic control because otherwise it's just the it, well, that way we have democratic control over the electricity provider if we don't then it's just up to the you know the the whims of the privately held uh the electricity provider to to decarbonize and we don't exactly trust them to carry that out right yeah so i think that and this is uh goes it's much more in detail in the book i think uh this is actually one of the first books that i've read that talks super in depth about this because it's a policy and a campaigning path that has not really been pursued by the climate movement for decades uh the national sierra club has no policy around public ownership uh and this is because a lot of public utilities like the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, like rural electric cooperatives, they actually are some of the dirtiest uh, energy utilities in the United States right now. But this is not because they are publicly owned. Uh, this is because they are not democratically controlled, even though they're publicly owned. So we have to talk about public ownership while also uh, making sure that that public also has the power to be able to discipline uh, capital uh, and um, the like actors there as well. Right. So, Carlos, can you tell us a little bit about what has happened so far with this campaign locally? Uh, it's been it's it's now being discussed on the on the city council. Right. There's like media coverage of it. What's going on here in Chicago around this democratized ComEd campaign? Yeah. Good evening, everyone. Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Alderman, Thirty Fifth Ward. Uh, I, too, remember uh, when Sean was at a Health and Environmental Protection Committee meeting, uh, sitting there, uh, observing, listening, uh, one of the few members of the community that was actually there. Uh, and it was one of the earliest meetings that we had uh, last term uh, to talk about this uh, franchise agreement with ComEd that's coming to an end. Um, and uh, since then, uh, from, uh, you know, it being Sean attending meetings uh, by his lonesome uh, <laughs> at the uh, City Hall, uh, we have now progressed uh, to a full-fledged campaign that is being led by the DSA. Uh, it started with uh, DSA leaders putting together a very detailed briefing, uh, which I believe there's copies uh, at the back of the room that you can take a look at, that really lays out what is uh, the legality of municipalizing ComEd, what does the state law say, what does the city say, what is the way that we could go about achieving that, what should be the demands that should be made of a municipal power supply company, um, what uh, are uh, alternatives? Uh, so, for example, you know, do we want to pursue a shorter uh, franchise agreement uh, to give us more leverage over ComEd? 
Uh, do we want to extract certain concessions from Kamed in lieu of municipalizing uh, our power supply company? And so it's very detailed. As a matter of fact, it is one of the best prepared and most detailed uh, policy briefs that I've received in my four years in the city council. So kudos uh, to DSA and to the Democratized Kamed campaign. Um, and so we hosted a series of briefings between uh, the leaders of the Democratized Campaign, uh, Comet Campaign, and uh, aldermen at City Hall. Uh, once we had reached a critical mass in these briefings in terms of progressive aldermen and allied aldermen that were interested in signing on uh, to this effort, we landed on doing sort of a transitionary demand. Um, and the way that this uh, franchise agreement works is that it's, it's, it's basically come to an end now. Um, because we have a new mayor, uh, because her administration is still getting its bearings, because we're going through a very uh, arduous budget process right now that includes a lot of moving parts in Springfield as well, um, the mayor's office really has not paid that much attention yet to what's happening with this franchise agreement. Um, and so it, it sort of seems like a lot of that conver- a lot of the conversations in terms of that franchise agreement are going to be taking place in 2020. Um, but looking towards that conversation happening in 2020, what we put forward was a council order uh, signed by 22 out of 50 aldermen directing uh, the uh, Department of Fleet and Facility Management, which oversees the franchise agreement, uh, to explore uh, and to come back to the city council with a report laying out the feasibility of municipalizing Kamed. Uh, and all the other options that are uh, on the table as it relates to the franchise agreement. We introduced that in July with uh, 22 co-sponsors, all of the DSA aldermen and a majority of the Environmental Protection Committee. And then the response that we got the administration was a little bit flippant. It was basically, um, well, we don't need a council order directing this department to do this study and to bring in an outside party to do this study because, of course, we're going to you know, look at all the options. So you don't need to tell us to do a study because, of course, we're going to look at all the options. Um, so um, that, before you that, move on, can I just ask how you got 22? I mean, there's six of you who are socialists on the Chicago City Council, which is incredible. There are not 22 socialists. Uh, I think you've said to me before that a lot of these people are just like, they'll just go <laughs> wherever the wind is blowing. They don't have a particular like yeah. political orientation. And so you, but, but to, the fact that you signed 22 of them up on this is kind of incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, one neoliberalism's focus on the data uh, helps us uh, because of the fact that it's very hard to say, no, fuck your study. Right. Like, <laughs> You know, we're literally just saying, no, we, we want a study. We want a third party to come in and give us the data uh, and provide guidance to this council. So I think that demand, right, because we've not yet demanded full, you know, um, municipalization and we weren't asking them to sign on to that. But a study to say, let's have a conversation about that. Uh, it's kind of difficult to say no to that. I just jump in real quick with something there. So, uh yeah, part of the reason why this is actually so extraordinary, I remember when this happened in July, uh, even just having the conversation is something that was not present in the climate space like uh, two years ago uh, at all. Like when this happened, uh, within 24 hours, there was also, that was when the Con Ed blackouts happened in New York City, uh, where you saw Con Ed, uh, not ComEd, Con Ed, uh, you saw them black out the lower income, black and brown parts of Brooklyn in order to keep the white parts of Brooklyn on. Uh, and because of that, uh, then Mayor de Blasio 
took up New York City DSA's talking point of maybe Con Ed should be publicly owned. So you had two of the three largest cities in the United States uh, having state uh, uh, like elected officials talking about public ownership. Uh, and the reason the third didn't is because it's already publicly owned uh, in L.A. And so this was literally like a paradigm shifter, which then reflected into the presidential town hall uh, like a month later, the seven hour climate crisis town hall, where you see a question get asked by somebody in New York City to Elizabeth Warren on whether public ownership of utilities is a like good solution. And she says, well, I don't know about that. I think the private utilities should be able to profit as long as they're moving towards decarbonization. So you see a major fault line start to uh, develop between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And that is because of what socialists were doing with state power. Carlos, if you do you want to say anything else about what, where the process is at right now? Uh, well, so as uh, was expected, uh, ComEd saw that uh, council order, and uh, ComEd has this very extensive lobbying uh, operation, which has actually been in the news recently because it uh, turns out it's corrupt. Um, and, um, you know, there were actually uh, members of the city council that had uh, consulting and lobbying contracts. Uh, to lobby Springfield on behalf of ComEd. Um, and, but God, for, we know that that's not impacting their decisions in city council. You know, they're just lobbying Springfield on behalf of ComEd. They're not, uh, you know, uh, letting that influence uh, how they feel about the franchise agreement. Um, and, and there's also just this, this entire network of the way that ComEd would just put people on their payroll. They would bring lobbying firms on contract and then add, you know, state legislator's favorite friend onto the payroll. Um, so there's just a lot that's coming out, and, and I think we'll continue to see uh, more headlines about that in the future. Um, but um, ComEd this time brought in the big guns. So there's like a general group of like city hall lobbyists um, that are in constant communication with aldermen, aldermanic offices. You know, hey, there's a power blackout. Hey, we're going to be doing this work here. Hey, do you need us to fix these wires? Um, they actually brought in an executive that's involved in decision-making at the highest level of ComEd to meet with individual aldermen that were asking for uh, this democratized ComEd campaign. Um, And it was not a good meeting. Um, I can tell you that um, it was very tense. Uh, They were not happy. Um, But essentially all they kept asking was, was, why are you doing this, right? Why do you want to municipalize ComEd? What is it that you're seeking to achieve? And, and what they kept going back to was, um, well, we're already highly regulated, right? And so, you know, our hands are tied by the state in terms of what we can and cannot do. But the other thing they kept coming back to, which is sort of what we predicted, is they said, well, we think we can achieve a lot of what you want through the franchise agreement. So let's just work through the franchise agreement and make sure that we have the best possible franchise agreement that we possibly have. So we've already seen how just this notion of, hey, we want a study to talk about the feasibility of municipalizing ComEd has already put pressure on ComEd to really move in the direction we want them to move in. Surprisingly, they've studied it and they don't think it's feasible. Who, who would have That's guessed? right. That's right. Uh, so they they'll, they'll send us all the data that shows right. that it won't be feasible. So before we turn it over to questions, uh, Sean, you mentioned uh, what can be done uh, with state power. Uh, so I, I wonder if we could end the conversation with talking about that because uh, obviously we're talking, we have somebody on this panel who is a member of Chicago's city council, who is one of, of several champions of, of this uh, democratized ComEd campaign locally. We have AOC, one of the, the very first thing that she does upon 
winning their con- congressional seat is to in- introduce the Green New Deal. We have uh, Bernie Sanders, who's really trumpeting a, a really strong Green New Deal. So uh, to, to Sean or to, to Alyssa or anyone, what what's the sort of way forward? I mean, like, obviously, like anything that we do, there has to be this sort of grassroots uh, piece, but there's also an important piece about uh, winning state power and, and, and trumpeting this kind of Green New Deal uh, agenda through state power. So what are the, some reflections on that? Well, you know, I think uh, most of us are probably familiar with the story of uh, the Crying Indian commercial uh, that came out in the 70s. And uh, that was an ad put out by the beverage industry and the plastic industry uh, to convince us that we actually didn't need the state to come in and uh, regulate them and mandate the use of glass bottles, reusable glass bottles, um, that really was just to individuals, you know, to not throw things on the highway and not litter. Um, and uh, we have seen the impact of that lasting, uh, of that ad uh, in policies here in the city of Chicago and across the nation. Um, so the city of Chicago has done things like there's the five cents uh, per uh, plastic bottle when you go get bottled water at the store, right? And that's supposed to be some type of like sin tax, right? Because you're buying plastic bottles. Really, it's just a regressive tax, right? To get revenue. The city of Chicago did that horrible... Um, ordinance around um the the plastic bags you all remember that uh which was really just like a giveaway to like the plastic bag and like it was like this one company that made these plastic bags that made a ton of money uh but the notion there was right we're going to regulate these plastic bags and and that's really what's uh by changing the type of plastic that's being used really that's going to have the impact that we need um and then of course i mean there's there's things uh like the city's recycling contract, which is a horrendous contract, but the city says, look, you know, we're making improvements in this way. But I think at the end of the day, as socialists, we understand that we need to use state power to really get to the root of the issue, right? And that is that there are some very wealthy and powerful corporations that do not care about the impact that their policies to make profit right now are going to have on this planet. Five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, right? Because they are focused on profit before people before planet and we need to use our state power then to make sure that we are moving forward policies that really fundamentally uh, alter that relationship right and so democratizing comet is one of those things right because it it takes away that profit motive uh, from our uh, delivery of power and instead puts the delivery of power into the hands of the people and then creates other motives and allows us to explore other ways uh, to to achieve that um, yeah, and then Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal plan, which uh, first and foremost, like it's miles above everybody else's because of the sheer scale of it. Uh, it mobilizes about sixteen trillion dollars, specifically around uh, climate-related policies. Uh, and then, if you pair that with his workplace democracy plan, which is about creating twenty million union jobs, pair that with Medicare for all and free college for all, and you have really just a foundation for a complete transformation, not to mention national rent control, all the other things. It's so good. Um, But one of the things that's in Bernie's plan specifically is about creating regional power marketing uh, administrations that would essentially decommodify energy. It's about the state taking on the initial cost of paying for renewable energy transitions and then bringing down the cost so that essentially it ends up being free. 
Um, and so this is about that democratization that you're talking about because the profit motive is erased. So that's one example. You also see uh, in the labor manifesto, uh, they're talking about uh, delisting companies from the London Stock Exchange that refuse to uh, move appropriately on climate change. So this is a really good example of dis using the power of the state to discipline uh, capital. And like we can only dream with having um, folks in two of the most highly industrialized and most powerful nations in the world um, with uh, essentially like eco-socialist mandates uh, moving forward. Also, uh, I don't know how many of you managed to sit through the entire Democratic debate this week, which was awful. Uh, but one of the highlights was when Bernie said that he was like, we need to seriously think about locking. Or no, he didn't say lock. He didn't say lock them up. That was my editorial. <laughs> that was my editorial. <laughs> he said lock them up. But he said we need to think very seriously about prosecuting some of these fossil fuel executives, which obviously we're not going to get any movement on that unless we have people in elected office to trumpet those demands. And then, right? and then we'll have a restorative process for them. Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Anything you want to say about Bernie? I'm an abolitionist. I just want to add that. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I'll say, and this is basically just a, a more general point that I think both Carlos and Sean have made, but, you know, we need to do a lot of um, work to remake the world we live on uh, in the most material sense. And, um, you know, the only sort of entities with the uh, the power and the money to do that are capital and the state. And uh, I would, you know, too often the state is working for capital, but we have um, at least some potential to make it work for uh, people. And I think we should do everything we possibly can to do that. And that's it's basically our only chance, I think. So, um, yeah, let's go do that. Great. And thank you to Alyssa for coming here and, and giving this talk. And thanks uh, to our panelists for speaking. Thanks for you all for spending you your all. Saturday night talking about this. Thanks. thanks. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com. 